0: Thank you guys so much for having us here. I'm excited to interview not one, but three (coughs) exceptional CEOs today. And I'll introduce them in just a moment. But I just wanna say this is a remarkable time for me as well because this is the first time we've ever done a live podcast in front of an audience, uh, ever, including this big, so that's pretty exciting. So before we get to the introductions too, I want you guys to get an idea of how we're gonna run this. The first part is gonna be a conversation. I have a few questions pre-planned. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna move into Crowdsource questions. So, about 35, 40 minutes into this, we'll open up questions from the audience. And so, you guys have a couple microphones here in the room. So, I just ask that you, you know, as soon as we move into that time frame, jump in and ask whatever questions you want. Whatever, nothing's off limits here. And I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things that we can discuss. So, let's get straight to it. The first person I want to introduce is Megan Reamer. Megan is the co-founder and CEO of Jackson's Honest, a healthy foods company. If you guys notice the snacks in front of you, that's from her company, Jackson's Honest. And how many of you have actually heard of this company? I'm just curious, or eaten her, her food. Yeah, let's hear it, actually. Thank you. I think it's kind of remarkable because the majority of the audience here is actually international, right? So that's, it's, it's just amazing. So she's been able to get on the shelves of 6,000 stores, if I'm not mistaken, including Whole Foods, which is um, one of the biggest uh, grocery chains in the United States um, for Whole Foods, well, for healthy foods. And beyond that, um, the point of Jackson's Honest was to make potato chips, tortilla chips, and grain-free puffs, all cooked in organic coconut oil. And their son's autoimmune disease defined the types of food he could eat, but they couldn't find the foods they needed, so they made them all from scratch. Megan and her husband Scott started Jackson's Honest as a way to share their son's Jackson's story and the delicious snack foods they've made for him. And they've since had their products featured again around the United States um, on many, many store shelves. And you might have seen Megan on last year's season of Shark Tank, where she received 1.25 million uh, investment from one of the sharks. So let's give a round of applause for Megan. Our next guest is Brett Boyd, and Brett is the CEO of Noma, a software platform for data access and discovery. And at Noma, Brett and his team build tools to help public and private sector organizations make better decisions with data. Brett began his career as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army, and he's published numerous articles on technology, strategy, change management, and is the co-author of Catalyst, Leadership and Strategy in a Changing World. And fun fact, Brett is also a West Point grad. So if you guys want to know who had shinier shoes as a cadet at West Point, between the two of us, you can ask that as well. Probably Brett. So let's give a round of applause for Brett. And last but not least, I'm excited to introduce Patrick Vlaskovits. Patrick is an entrepreneur and two-time New York Times bestselling author. His writing's been featured in the Harvard Business Review and Wall Street Journal, and he speaks at technology conferences worldwide. He's the founder and CEO of Superpowered Inc, a Techstar-funded startup that is the leading interactive audio development platform for desktop, mobile, IoT, and embedded devices. And random trivia for Patrick, he's bilingual and speaks fluent Hungarian. So let's give a round of applause for Patrick. I wanna kick things off with a question for Megan. Megan, you entered a marketplace that is hyper crowded, super, it's competitive, right? And you're going up against competitors who are multi-million dollar and billion dollar companies. And so I'm curious, how did you differentiate a new product in such a competitive, crowded marketplace? How do you even approach that problem set?
1: When we launched Jackson's Honest, we only had potato chips and they were cooked in organic coconut oil. We knew that was our differentiator. There was nothing else on the shelf that was offered in that particular type of oil. So for us, it was a lot of naivete in how the grocery industry works as well. And that that really, I think, played into uh, our benefit because if we knew what we were undertaking at that point in time, I think it would have been um, troublesome. It may have not have been something that we uh, decided to launch, but uh, when we so we knew that what we were offering in that in that set in that category was something unique, and uh, and we were ready to go to market with it. It was pretty black and white for us. It was you know there was some market research we'd done around that category as a whole, like what the dollars are associated with it, who owns it, which is really Frito Lay. I mean they own like. 85% of that that share, but um, but we you know when we set out to launch our products, it was with you know our expectations were pretty mild. I think you know we thought if we saw one bag of our chips on the shelf at Whole Foods Market, which was our barometer, we we drop the mic and walk away and we were done, right? That was it, and um, and it was really the tip of the iceberg for us, and and as it would be for anybody, but. Um, you know, we, we knew we were coming to market with something that was unique and, um, and that was really you know, our calling card and that was what buyers for different retailers reacted to and we knew that we were offering something that would not hurt the other sales in that aisle but also bring new consumers back to that, bring new consumers into that space as well as old consumers who maybe had given up on that, on that aisle and those products.
0: And has anything changed with how you perceive the marketplace now? Because you kind of came into it, you said, we'll say naive optimism and now you guys are in the space, so it's like every time you introduce a new product, it's. I'm sure there's some level of analysis you're doing as well to make sure. Yeah,
1: there is for sure. I mean, we're looking at market data now. We weren't doing that before. We, uh, you know, we, we're just a lot smarter about how we're going to market, but I don't think we're at all deterred around what we're doing and what we're bringing. So for us, potato and tortilla chips were a no-brainer. Nobody was doing that in coconut oil. For puffs, you know, we wanted to expand this snack portfolio and really have this platform. And so, when we looked at puffs, it was you know we had to ask ourselves, what can we bring to this aisle that's different than what already exists? Because there's a lot of cheese puffs that um, that show up on that shelf. And so, uh, it was thinking through what that meant and c- kind of looking inward, like personal decision, right? So. If I'm avoiding rice and I'm avoiding corn, what can I bring to uh, to that aisle that is different? Because all of those puffs have rice and corn, rice and or corn in them, and so. We then had to put our thinking cap on and try to understand what ingredients were different and uh, how could we, one of the primary ingredients we focused on right away was cassava flour. So how can we you know, create a puff that includes cassava flour and what else does it include? And so it's this real you know, sort of um, iterative process of, along this R&D, um, R&D lane and uh, that was way before trying to understand what flavors we might launch or what the packaging would look like. So, you know, I think uh, I think for us it starts with a personal desire and a personal need, and then grows out of that in how we could elevate something that already exists in that aisle.
0: Fantastic. So I want to dovetail this into a question for Patrick. You are also in what I would consider a very challenging industry. Uh, you know, mobile audio is like one of the aspects of what you do, and it's not something that comes to mind immediately as like oh, I, I should definitely enter that space and build a, Don't. you know, okay, right, a multi-billion dollar business, right? But there are companies that are valued very highly. It's a space that obviously there is a, a quite a bit of profit to be made. So I'm curious how you perceived or evaluated the pockets of opportunity and where in the value chain you decided to focus your efforts.
2: Great question. So what we do is we actually have a, a software development kit we offer to developers we are working on interactive audio projects. Uh, our primary innovation, uh, if you're an engineer, is digital signal processing, so we, our technology is very resource efficient, uh, very fast, low latency, and if you believe in a world of sort of multi-sensorial world, you believe sort of IoT, and I'm sure GE has bazillions of dollars invested in that, um, it, you look at this, what does that new world look like, and, and, the, and it looks like a low power, uh, low resourced, Processor. Uh, I think we're certainly heading into that world, and for us, what the, the opportunity we saw is that most folks were sort of ignoring audio. It's sort of the, to use an American expression, the redheaded stepchild of media. A and then B, people weren't cottoning on to the fact that cheap ARM, basically mostly ARM chips, were sort of taking over the world. And they're in every device, almost every consumer device. You've got some variant of ARM, and so we had. Uh, done quite a bit of um, um, in-house technical research and developed our own methods around to optimize for that, and which we've patented since. Um, and we basically, as a small team, as a tiny team, we think we can move faster than larger companies, and we can also execute faster. We're certainly resource-constrained, because uh, we're a small team, and it's a continuous problem. Where, how do we allocate resources? But for this market opportunity, we saw this sort of opening that people seem to be ignoring Also, possibly because it looked like a small space, but I think, like a typical innovation story, at least the story we tell ourselves, is that this is a small space that opens up into a bigger space and leads into bigger categories. And I think that's a, that's, you know, anyone here in this room has probably heard that story around a successful innovation uh, before.
0: How do you then, like, I suppose, approach it with when it comes to, say, investment of resources and manpower, money, whatever it takes?
2: Great question. for me, I'll tell you personally, what I love actually doing is when when we especially when we work with larger uh, companies that are you know behemoths compared to us, I like deals where we can where we deliver value, we can license some technology, but we also co-develop IP. I found those to be quite uh quite valuable on both sides of the table, actually. And and uh that helps me manage my sort of resources where where are we because I don't want to get, sometimes we do services as well. I, we didn't set out to build a services company. If we would have, which we didn't want to, uh, we, it would have been a very different company. It was sort of a body shop and we competing with people uh, in Eastern Europe and Asia around uh, custom programming. That was never the intention. We do some services, uh, but we actually have a product that's, that has a massive footprint actually. Uh, literally billions of app installs run our code, uh, tens of thousands of apps. And for us, it was to keep our eye on the ball as far as our internal resources, it was can we strike deals where, that are not only profitable, bring in revenue, keep the lights on, uh, are interesting, but we can also co-develop IP, uh, where we retain IP and, and, and um, uh, increase our product offering. That was, that was one of the strategies that I took.
0: Awesome. Brett, in your book, Catalyst, you talk about the nature of business cycles and how these are kind of compressing across time. And- how these business cycles are kind of, the, the, the rate of innovation like 100 years ago or 200 years ago was like maybe once every 100 years and now it's maybe, like we'll say the last decade or two was once maybe every 10 or 20 years and now maybe it's even faster. And so innovation and change is happening and it's compressed. So I'm really curious, can you explain what this means for businesses and their leadership? And I guess I think about who's in the audience here and you guys are all the leaders of your businesses and you're, you're gonna to have to adapt to this change, I think, that you're, that you're forecasting, that you, that you see play out. So, if you can give us some ideas about what that would mean for the businesses and their leadership, and how can you share how you might, or how you implemented this, maybe, in your startup and your experience?
3: Sure. So look, I hope that, uh, that you all recognize what just a, a totally interesting time it is to, I mean, to be alive, but also to be a leadership, in leadership roles in in a company as important as this. I mean, we we really have, if you kind of back up, and and I like to study industry trends and and just the way the structures of different industries, but if you really back up and look at this, most industries tend to evolve in steps. You have a plateau, you have incremental improvements until a new plateau, and and so on. And these plateaus occur at, at different rates in different industries. You know, obviously the, the energy industry has taken a long time to go from sale to coal to oil to, you know, we'll see what's next. But in all of these different industries, uh, you, you do see these these cycles compressing. And if you back up again and you, you look at what happens when you, you hit a new paradigm here, it's uh, these are times of enormous opportunity and risk. And I, I think if you look across the board here and you look at these different major categories here and you see the cycles compressing, there are actually different types of organizations that, uh, that you would build. If you were going to build for something where you would expect a significant change once in a generation versus once every five years, for example. And, uh, and again, if, uh, if you were building for an organization that you would expect to have competition against peers, etc. In, in a relatively incremental fashion, you would optimize for efficiency, and you would optimize for, for process and discipline. And I think that's, that's when you look around, you still see a lot of those effects of the industrial economy. And uh, and if you think about that and you pull it forward and you say, well, well, what does it mean if that cycle is five years instead of 30 years? And I think if you look at the S&P 500, you look at Fortune 500, you kind of look at the, the the average longevity of organizations on those cycles, I think you could make a strong argument that you know, we're in the 10 to 15 range and it's collapsing quickly. So the question then becomes, what, what type of an organization do you build to thrive in times like that? Like what does it mean to be able to reinvent yourselves? And these are buzzwordy things that you can throw around, but, but I, I would argue that there's actually a fundamentally different leadership paradigm that would be required to excel. And I would also argue that you would, you would want to optimize around, um, I don't know, call it strategic agility and flexibility as opposed to efficiency and process. And this is a remarkable challenge to, uh, to navigate for an organization like this, candidly, is you have the requirement to both you know, control margins, look at quarterly reports, and, and not sacrifice that, that efficiency that makes this such an excellent and enduring organization, but you also have to develop this capacity, which is, uh, which, which I, I think is a different type of structure and a different type of thinking around process and organizations. So for those people or those businesses that have adopted
0: the industrial style built on efficiency and, and scale and those kind of
3: things. How do they actually make the transition over into agility? Well, I mean, look, so I think there isn't a, there isn't a template answer for this. And I'm also not presuming that I have this figured out, right? So we built a company called Greyline Group where we would actually help organizations think about this and navigate. And, and it was actually a great opportunity to work with different industries and see how similar the problems are. Um, I, as again, you well know in this room as you cross so many different industries, but um, I, I've actually recently stepped in a role where I'm, I'm uh, Trying to do it as opposed to talk about it, which is you know, I mean candidly. It's a little bit different It's a challenge because it really is if you go if you err too far on the side of look We're gonna be ready to adjust and so on you're gonna lose now and there are a lot of good companies out there that are uh, that are doing great things from a competitive perspective that you need to be very careful of, and so again, what's the dynamic of investment on now versus investment in the future, and how do you how do you ensure that that you put the right people and the right talent in situations to succeed, um, and in in those areas of flexibility, as a, a final anecdote here, I I really like Christensen's innovators dilemma, and I know that's you know very well taught and so on, but I actually think it's it's not a business strategy issue. I don't actually think that organizations are sitting there saying, look, let's not invest in this R&D project because we don't want to invent something that will compete with us. I think it's the best people go to where the opportunity and the money is, which tend to be in the, in the high profitable lines of business. So you go down this path then of how do you structure your organization where you can actually have the right people at these inflection points uh, as you go through? And, and again, candidly, I'd love to hear some thoughts. I haven't figured this all out yet myself.
0: So I think I was talking to you, Patrick, about this a little bit, and it was about this idea of incentives and how you incentivize people to maybe say if you're thinking about this reorganization or you're moving towards something more agile, how you could create your organization. You're building something that is agile by its nature. It's a startup, so you're not adopting necessarily something that's already uh, been in this industrial type structure that's slower, that's efficient. You're you're kind of like gunning to get the small wins and the big wins and just whatever it takes. But it's this idea of how you might organize your operation and then organize, but also I think incentives and rewards and and that, broadly speaking, that um, system. So can you give us an idea of how you structure that personally and how you approach
2: that? Yeah, I don't know if I can say anything terribly intelligent that would be helpful to folks at, at, at G here, but I'll tell you one thing I think a lot about is when we hire developers where we compete for developers uh, and we want basically what I would call wizards Uh, because we have a very small team and people have to be able to contribute to that team day one and we recently hired a a, a wonderful developer, a PhD in electrical engineering. Um, And one of the things I think about, so if I look at this market of developers, who I can hire, and and we actually have a remote team so we can hire all over the world. We're not just stuck to the United States. Uh, and then, so, okay, well, if you're a wizard, what options do you have for you, right? This is back to the incentive question. And, turned, and, and for us, um, relative to other startups, we can pay about the same. We can't pay nearly as well as, as Facebook or Google or some of the tech behemoths, um, but we do do very interesting work, low-level audio signal processing work, uh, which <laughs> doesn't sound terribly interesting, but it can, actually can be. And, uh, it's, um and where we also happen to work with some um, celebrities and sort of high profile folks on interesting projects as well, and that's how we can actually dis- differentiate and sort of incentivize people. So I make it very clear when we go recruit people, um, that it's the of course the 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 financial package and the compensation has to be there in terms of incentives and all that. but for us, the work has to be very meaningful, and then the opportunity to do work on projects where uh, especially in, 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 if anyone's a here as an engineer, they know this to be true. The the, the best way to pitch an engineer on, on working for you is make it clear that their work will touch the lives of millions of people, and ours does, uh, because we have such a large footprint with our, with our install base.
0: Megan, I want to talk to you about this because you started Jackson's Honest from a little mountain town with 2,000 people, and you have an office now in Boulder, I know, but, you know, you're just you're not you're not situated in the typical space to be able to kind of like come in and disrupt a whole uh, industry, but you but you have so you but in, you're working with a somewhat of a remote team, but it's small and you're growing. You've gotten the investment. I'm really curious about how you actually think about and approach to hiring talent and what that looks like, and I guess how you solve that puzzle.
1: Well, I would agree with Patrick. I think when we go out to find team members to fill key roles, they're really, they're first and foremost drawn to Jackson's Honest by its mission. And so they feel very passionate about being part of building this company and you know financially compensation wise agree again it all has to be there but beyond that they find a lot of meaning and purpose in what they're doing they are putting their personal stamp on creating their role which is creating this larger organization and this larger company and they see people you know buying our chips they see people consuming our products and they know they ha- there's a lot of empowerment in that and uh, a lot of autonomy and responsibility. And so we are a team of seven people and uh, we're incredibly proud of what we've been able to accomplish and everybody is just firing on all cylinders all the time. And, And the only way to I think, keep people going in that fashion is, they have to believe in it. They have to buy into what they're doing and they have to see this larger purpose around it. And for us, we've been really lucky in, in finding those team members and bringing them on board and you know putting them in the right roles and just letting them go at it.
0: So I wanna talk about growth here for a second and this might touch on for all three of you, but Brett, I wanna start with you. How do you position a business for growth and, and for this question, specifically with you, when you talk about this compression of timelines for business cycles, you, know, you're, you explain that, what is, what is the environment gonna be like in five years? We need to think about that. And that's the kind of company we should build or build toward. So how do you think about, I, I suppose, growth in relation to this compression of timelines as well?
3: Well, I'm going to sort of use this to actually bridge off of uh, Megan's and Patrick's prior comment, which I thought were great, but this is all a function of leadership. And I'm sure you heard this come through here, but these are passionate people who have a vision for what they're trying to do and people want to follow someone who has passion and has and knows what they are trying to do. And and it, it kind of comes down to this around, you know, again, how are you trying to how are you positioning your business, and how are you positioning it in such a fashion that you remain flexible here? Like our, our business, so Noma, that's an amalgamation of the Greek word for meaning and the word knowledge. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but we're about a 57-employee company, uh, largest database of public data in the world, and grew out of actually a brilliant Wharton PhD economist around how to how to help organizations look at their data in context of the world's data. and so. We live in Austin, Austin has an unemployment rate of like 2% or something like that, and it's the same comment, right? Like, you're not, if you're gonna just try to, from a purely economic standpoint, if you're gonna try to compete with all the Silicon Valley companies that have just built their second headquarters in town, you're gonna lose. So this becomes an idea of saying, look, you know, we, we, we are placing an anchoring bet. We are betting that we have a view on, uh, on data, where it comes from, how it works, and what organizations can do with it, and, and I'm not actually sure how that's going to play out, but I'm, I'm very confident that, that this space is going to continue to be important, and I'm, I'm absolutely certain that our ability to be successful in kind of an unknown future environment is going to be reliant upon the team that we build, and that we have right now. And so it, it really does become an idea of how do you frame what you're trying to do specific enough to win today, you know, because again, otherwise you're a hobby and not a business, but broad enough to be flexible and uh, you know and and be part of uh, of growth, however it happens. And and again, I, I would argue that this applies from everything. I mean, tech. This applies to. Every product category, actually, and how you define who you are and what you're trying to do. But look, companies are people. That's very, very important to understand that companies are people. You have stuff, you know, you have markets, you have balance sheets, but at the end of the day, uh, people are your key asset. And, um, anyways, it's just a helpful way to think about it. Yeah. Let, let me just jump in real quick. Sorry. Was
2: interesting. I think what the three of us just said. I, I would. I think we all agree. And I didn't understand this until a few years ago. But I actually, I think. Uh, understanding your company's, whether it's the mission or the, she said, Megan said mission, uh, Brett said a vision. I would call it story, but the fundamentally they're sort of the same thing. And having the uh, wherewithal to develop and sort of hammer on that story, craft that story, iterate on the story, and then, and actually um, communicate it across to the colleagues, to your employees, to your business partners, I think is a critical component that I think is equally scalable in, in smaller companies like like Megan's and mine and 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 Brett's, as well as behemoth enterprise uh, in G, as in G. And I think that actually is a very um, <clears throat> unappreciated skill, where it's sort of seen as oh that's bullshit marketing, Pfft, that's unimportant. But you know Megan built initially you know I think the the core of her business around the story of her son, and I find that that telling a story is not a pejorative. The word story shouldn't be a pejorative. It shouldn't be thought of as the, the cherry on top of the cake. It's the entire cake actually, right? And that, and I think that's a, a low hanging fruit that any organization can do better to achieve more wins in the marketplace is understand the, the internal narratives, uh, the internal vision, the internal mission, uh, craft it into a story that's easily retold uh, easily communicated both internally and externally.
0: Mm-hmm. And Megan, I think you're kind of coming back to you with the story that you started with. How important was that? You meant you, you kind of articulated how important that is from a talent standpoint. But how important was it from a startup standpoint, like getting your first customers and working with business, par- uh, you know, strategic partnerships and things like that.
1: It was critical to that as well, I mean, you know, I I underestimated how that story would translate for buyers at the retail level. So when I walk into um, Publix, a grocery store or Whole Foods Market or, you know, any of the, the retailers, any of the grocery stores that you walk into and go to speak with those buyers about bringing our products in. Uh, I was surprised by how much they responded, how our story resonated with something either personally or something they knew and already know about their consumers and what they're looking for. Um, it, it was the, the reason they said yes sometimes, right? They liked, they liked that we were a mom and pop, they liked that we were a startup, but they really liked that there was meaning and passion behind it, um, and it was not just some shiny new product on the shelf.
0: Brett, for you, you're working in data. How do you make a compelling story around that? Because I think this is gonna be a challenge that a lot of people in the room have, correct me, I mean, was that, would that be true to say? Because like, how do I tell a story about what I do if it, if it seems you know, generic or,
3: or something like that or if it seems too technical? I think there's an easy answer about that. Is you make it about outcomes. I mean, nobody actually cares about data, mm. but they care deeply about making better decisions. They care deeply about living better lives. They care deeply about X, Y, and Z. And I think connecting what you do to the end objective is a uh, is a great way to frame that. And and again, I mean, so reflect back to Juan Pablo. And uh, excuse me if I misheard your name, but. That was an amazing story that you told about cash and again no offense that's not like the most exciting you know traditionally cash management and balance sheets aren't like these heroic epics but I was in and and again I think this can be about anything because he anchored it to the shared success of this team and that part of the world which is wonderful we anchor our data story around your success as an organization and the viability of the decisions that you make as a result of being able to benefit from uh, from all of this data and so that's that would be my short answer and I, I, I suspect you could actually apply that to any kind of you know, widget, doodad, piece of software, or whatever you do. Again, this all exists for a reason, to help somebody do something. It's not necessarily about your specific piece. I want to bring it back to the audience and
0: maybe you can either call it out like yay or raise your hands too, it's a little tough to see. How many of you feel like you actually have the autonomy to implement some of the stuff that's being talked about on stage here? raise them high because it's hard to see. About 50%, 60%, a lot of hands there. maybe a little more than that. So there's some people that aren't raising their hands and you feel like then there, maybe there's not, a, you don't have the autonomy to actually implement this. And maybe, maybe part of that then is top-down directives and things like that. So I'm really curious about this. If you can kind of help, well, help everybody in this room and, and me understand that. If I'm in an organization where Maybe I don't have the complete freedom that a CEO has. And I know, you know everything's on the line with you guys. Actually,
2: I don't think CEOs have a lot of freedom, actually. <laughs> I, right. I, think, I feel like I'm like bound, like
0: my choices are always restricted, but. Well, yeah, they're, they're restricted in the scope of, you have to make the business survive so you right. can eat. You know? Cash is reality. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you're restricted to a degree. But, you, but also, nobody's gonna tell you what to do either, for sure. And, and you're probably not gonna be stopped if you really care about doing something,
2: maybe. Well, it's like being a father. Like, like, I can get my way with my wife and my kids, but there's downstream effects, right? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> like I mean, the same thing with CEO, like there are certain times I feel very strongly that we should be doing something else, but if I, you know, stamp my CEO foot and we did it this way, there's gonna be, it, it's not, I need to, as a leader, as any leader here, you can do the iron fist sort of thing. That's gonna work short term, right? But real leaders, I believe, uh, serve, Right, service leadership, or whatever you want to call it, and persuade. Actually, right, and actually, I think one of the I'm not going to get into politics, but there's a there's I've seen. I'm I'm really interested in story because I write books, and I've written three books, and so I think about narrative structure a lot, probably a lot more than anyone in this room uh, tends to. But actually, I think one of the abilities as a leadership, whether it's inborn or uh, or 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 uh, learned, is the ability to tell stories to persuade people, and I think. if this is a you know, conference around leadership, I think the more time you spend learning that, whether it's buying books or taking courses, the better off your career in the organization will be.
0: Brett, you had some experience before <clears throat> Noma where you were in an organization, right? And you had to set up the sales arm, or I think the enterprise arm, if I'm correct. So maybe you can k- give me an idea of that. It's like, how do you approach that? It's, and I, you mentioned the word persuasion. And I thought that was really cool. And I don't know if that was part of what you had to do here and how you had to persuade people into letting you do what you thought you needed to do to, to implement your ideas, to ensure success. So walk me through that process.
3: Yeah, you'll notice, um, you'll notice we actually tell our career journeys as stories as well. And I I actually think of my career. So I I started as an infantry officer within the special operations community in the army. So I had my 50 or 60 person group. We went out and we did our thing. Uh, But that is the definition of a cog in a wheel. So I've been the leader of a subgroup within a really, really large organization. Uh, The organization that Tom's talking about is a company called Stratfor, a a geopolitical analysis and forecasting company. And this is a large organization that, that, uh, that under which I built their enterprise business, if that makes sense. So have kind of built a company inside an existing company and then have gone through the path of trying to build a company from scratch, uh, which was Grayline. And again, in in this role, have actually taken a company that was founded in 2011 and has some wonderful tools and a a great audience and and trying to take that to the next level of of company development here. And so, I mean, look, as you look across all of these things, I I think that there are, are different I think there are unifying principles that, that endure regardless of where you sit, right? And, and everything I am and how I think and who I am today is in some degree a manifestation of who I was, you know, as Captain Boyd running around trying to, uh, you know, sort through the Iraq war here 15 years ago, right? And, and I, think it's important to, uh, I think it's important to think about your career as a building block from that perspective, or as a series of building blocks in that perspective. It, it's not, there's this myth that, uh, that look, when I get the big job, then I'll be able to do whatever I was gonna be doing. No, like when you get the big job, you're gonna be exactly who you are now. Mm. The relationships that you develop now are gonna be the relationships that support you when you're in that job. And the way that you tackle problems and the way you treat people now are, are going to reflect through your career. And, uh, and, you know, and again, really owning that, and uh and and trying to think about you know look I'm I'm where I am now I'm in charge of a division a group a team you know the balance sheet for South America or whatever you were trying to manage there I, it, how do I how do I make this great and how do I do this with respect and integrity and how do I do this by making this group this organization better than it was when I found it and, and these are i don't know these are I feel the uh the, the, the traits and the tools that you take forward into these jobs, and again, to, to Patrick's point, don't overglamorize the, you know, the CEO suite. You actually spend less time on the interesting aspects of the business and more time on the uh, some of the nitty-gritty, less interesting things.
0: So, I want to shift a little bit to partnerships, really briefly. I think partnerships are a big part of what everybody in this room. Uh, does or a component of what you do. It's, it's a requirement for you to be successful is how you look at what are the resources and the teams outside of, say, my core team or, or who I'm working with to, uh, you know, to make something happen, right? A bigger, larger scale. So this idea of partnerships. And Megan, I want to talk to you about this because I think you've done a remarkable uh, job with this. And then we'll go to, to Brett and to Patrick here. But when you think about partnerships, like walk me through your process of how you actually approach strategic partnerships where you look for opportunities that, say, like you can't handle in-house, and how you, I guess, just approach it and try to solve for that problem.
1: Well, for us, it it's partnering with retailers, typically, um, and brick and mortar retailers. So Whole Foods Market is a great example of that. When we started working with them, we you know, had this very strong relationship right out of the gate. We were a small business. They wanted to support us. They, you know, they like product diversity. They like to be the first ones to market with new products. Um, you know, we sat down and really tried to understand where they were coming from. Is it? Do you want non-GMO products? Do you want organic products? You know, what, what, what. Kind of checks your boxes, and here's what checks ours, and trying to understand where those intersect, right? As just a fundamental conversation, for us in starting that conversation and then continuing to work with Whole Foods specifically, but certainly other retailers and and certainly other channels like e-commerce, for instance, where. Um, we're launching our new puffs, our new grain-free puffs, solely through Thrive Market, which is an e-commerce store. So, um, but but if I use Whole Foods Market as an example, they have something called a local loan program. And so within each region, they have a team that can um, support local businesses with loans. And for us, we started working with them uh, to get a loan, and. What we turned around to do with that money was create packaging, create um, an exclusive potato chip for Whole Foods Market to sell to them. So the purple heirloom chip that might be on some of your tables. you know, We worked very closely with Whole Foods to create and launch that within their stores only. And um, it really set that product, that particular skew off on the right foot. And it's just been on this fantastic tra- trajectory ever since. But we got their support financially as well as promotionally and marketing and merchandising. And it was a wonderful collaborative example of um, how to launch a product and and make it succeed within Whole Foods.
0: So it sounds like not only did you get buy-in, but there was skin in the game from them as well. Yes. You were invested. So Patrick, you're kind of nodding your head. I'm just curious about your experience with like partnerships and how you've approached this.
2: Yeah, we were talking about this this over lunch. Uh, The... uh, the two broad buckets I look at, I mean, I look at the entire deal when we, when we approach um, uh, these companies for, for when we, often when we co-develop IP on, on some of these projects, and I look at uh, risk, so who's eating the risk, and uh, we were talking this over lunch, and I, was, I have a seven-year-old little boy, and he was listening to me talk about the deal, and he's like, Daddy, what does it mean you're eating all the risk? So I explained to them you know, how the contract was structured, <laughs> and, and, uh, and how they had these clawbacks uh, for performance that didn't make sense, anyhow. But Number one, I look at I look at I look at risk first. I mean, assuming the the financials, and economics work out. And two, I look at uh, this is something that might be helpful for some folks. I look at actually how how the other side perceives time. So, as a small company, uh, we perceive time very very differently than large companies do. And this is something that's kind of out of my experience as running a startup. And and I think um, my my panel mates here would agree is that. For example, in the tech space, I don't know, I don't know anything about food, but in the tech space, you could, you know, fund a company, hire ten people, launch a profit product, pivot the product, pivot again, fire some people, hire some more people, and then be out of business and have raised, you know, two million dollars and have done a good faith effort uh, within a year, right? And and that's like that would be sort of kind of normal. Uh, and so sometimes we talk to very large enterprise on these deals. And I try to gauge the other side's perception of time—not just, "Hey, when do you think this deal is going to get done?" But how do they actually think about time? And for me, you'll never match that up perfectly harmoniously. But if I have a good understanding, often thinking along that dimension has given me sort of internal insight about whether the deal is going to go through or not. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's not something I've always been able to articulate. Uh, but something like, "You know, I don't know these guys—they're they're saying all the right thing, but..." I don't know, and, and so I think a lot about, especially when you have small companies like mine interacting with huge companies, is how do they perceive time, and,
3: and, and, uh, and it's, it's often very different.
0: Brett, do you have any thoughts on this?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess the, uh, the, another element that I would add is just the idea of strategic fit. I, I really like the discipline that's forced on small businesses. It, it really goes down the path of, you know, what are we the best in the world at? And let's just do that. And then let's find other organizations who are the best in the world at what they do, and let's weave these together in a way that provides better outcome for our customers and our employees. I mean, that really becomes it. So how do you be laser-focused on, you know, this is what I do, and we're going to crush this, and we're going to complement our efforts as opposed to trying to be everything for everyone. We're going to focus our efforts on this thing. Like we, for example, we, uh, you know, back to the data story, so, so again, data is interesting and helpful. Uh, Data means different things for different industries. So, we have some partnerships basically where we leverage the world's macroeconomic data, and we have partners in the commodity space, in the steel space, actually in the corporate security space, and in the financial space who take our data and help contextualize it based on who they know the ultimate customer is having sat in that seat before. It doesn't actually make sense for me with my organization at this size to go hire a, a bunch of ex-buy you know, side Wall Street folks and try to figure that out myself. I would much rather like, let's crush who we are and let's then partner with organizations that can help add that extra layer of contextualization which results in you know, better outcomes, higher prices, more traction, longer contracts, et cetera. I love it. Well,
0: I wanna move to the Q&A. Who's interested in asking a question to any one of our panelists? Or the whole group, and we'll take them out. Do you guys
3: need any water? Do you need water. I'm good. I brought some.
1: Oh, I'm okay. Do you want some water, Patrick?
3: I'm good, fine. Thanks. I have a question for Megan.
0: First of all, thanks for the snacks. Snacks, really loved it. As you think about building sustainable competitive advantage in an industry like yours, which is which is my very mature in many ways, how do you think about two extremes? One coming from Product innovation, and the other going towards, if I can say, execution efficiency at scale. How do you how do you balance between these two?
1: Uh, it's a great question because I think, and and this is something Patrick just touched on. We feel this pressure to continue to innovate and um, bring new products to market. We have so many ideas about what those are, but again, getting back to this. Um, getting back to this cash uh, quote from Juan Pablo, it is it is hard to, to make sure you have the correct resources in place to be able to bring them all to market. Uh, having said that, I think we can really identify where along that innovation pipeline and where we are in that path that, to understand which products we feel really compelled to bring to market sooner rather than later. So to really be able to prioritize, and then within that prioritization, um, we try to understand the best way to bring them to market. So, you know, there are different channel strategies, really, right, there's, um, in in the grocery business, there's conventional markets, there's conventional retailers, uh, like, you know, Safeway, Kroger, uh, uh, HEB, some some of those retailers around the country. There's a natural channel. There's e-commerce, which is something that is um, you know five years ago was not a big player in the grocery business and is right now. So many people are getting their groceries from Amazon. Uh, so you know, identifying what the product is that we're going to bring to market and then the best channel in which to do that is um, is, is a lot of our analysis in what we want to um, introduce. I think, you know, we definitely feel pressure to continue to innovate, but we still have a lot of business opportunity with the first product we launched, Four years ago. And so it's, it's a tough balance to, to understand how to go really deep with our original product and get them on the shelves where they need to be, but, you know, automatically, you know, within 18 months, start um, launching a new one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for being here today. My question is for you, Megan, in particular. I think that Jackson's Honest has a great story. It definitely appe- appeals to people's emotions. And you talked a little bit about how you got that story out to the buyers at stores. Beyond Shark Tank and bringing us these great snacks, what have you done to get that story out to the consumer across the United States? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, for when we first started, we were really surprised at how um, ferociously, consumers were finding us, right? So we had a website, we had a Facebook page. You know, did the bare minimum of what you need to do when you launch a business, and this was six years ago, and we didn't have any. You know, search. We weren't doing any search engines, and you know, these consumers were 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 emailing us, and and all of the inquiries were inbound, and we were shocked by that, and we realized that. There was this much larger market for not just our specific coconut oil products, but sort of this better for you snack space and, and you know how do we think more broadly about this For myself for myself around reaching out to consumers and trying to engage and interact it's through a lot through our digital channels, through our social media, having you know really good interactions and conversations along uh, Instagram and, and Facebook and Twitter, but it's also doing a lot of in-store demos and passing out product and getting people to try them and and just you know having these type of conversations with people individually as much as I can around the country. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Mohammed Ayoub. Um, I have a question for the whole group here. Patrick mentioned time as a category to determine whether we're partnering with uh, with uh, with some of our partners or not. What about time in determining whether we should continue in an entrepreneurship based on the market response for that? In many cases, we've been pioneers in getting into a technology, but we didn't really see the same tractions from our customers. And then when is the right time to say, yes, this is a successful uh, investment, and when to say, no, it is not?
0: Perfect. Who wants to field that first one? That's a tough one. It's
2: a hard one. I'll take it. So I think um, there's been a lot of literature that's been written about this. Uh, as, as Brett mentioned, Clayton Christensen's uh, Innovator's Dilemma is a, talks a lot about these same problems. Uh, I've written two books also about innovation and talk about, a lot about sustaining innovation and then disruptive innovation. They're actually very two very different animals. They actually shouldn't be, it's almost like they shouldn't be each called innovation. Right? Sustaining innovation is, uh, every year, like a new car model comes out, the brakes get better, the engines get incrementally better, um, et cetera, et cetera. The market is known, the customer needs are known. Sustaining innovation is completely different. Like you don't know anything about the market, the customer's not believable, you can't survey them. You're doing weird stuff that, that the impact is also unknown. And to take this back to your question, when you're doing disruptive innovation, you shouldn't apply the benchmarks of sustaining innovation to disruptive innovation. Does that make sense? So that's often why big companies historically have missed real like, disruptive innovation because they've applied sort of ROI and things like that, things that work for the standard business, things that work for sustaining innovation. They go, okay, well, let's, we're doing some weird, cool, um, uh, you know, let's call it additive manufacturing. Although I think that at that point that's already becoming more sustaining. but we're doing some weird, cool stuff. The business managers are obviously held to financial performance uh, um, uh, schemes, and so a lot of stuff gets then sort of you know like abandoned right right before it gets big. And my sort of shooting from the hip take is it's the, the wrong parameters, the wrong metrics have been applied to really interesting innovation, where you can apply parameters that measure. Uh, you know, customer uh, um, utility, customer feedback, customer love that maybe sound a little bit more fuzzy, but it would actually be appropriate for a really a disruptive innovation uh, where it just, just hasn't matured enough to be measured by
3: ROI and, th- and, and revenue and things like that. But can I just to add a quick point here? That's actually a really interesting way to think about this. And, and I would also just suggest that there are... Uh, There are some models in the uh, the venture capital and private equity markets. There are just some models for evaluating portfolios of different technology investments that you could potentially look at. I mean, you actually, you know, that that mindset, again, the venture capital mindset of the idea that I'm going to make some large strategic bets and I'm going to actually, you know, lose nine and win one or whatever the statistics are. Different organizations have different investment models. But I do think that that approach, is uh, is something that corporate R and D can learn from venture capital markets, for example, in how to how to think about and manage an investment portfolio. When a uh, when a portfolio of a venture company fails, that is not career suicide for whoever ran it. That is not you know oh what a terrible idea we blew it. It's more the idea of wow, like what can we learn from this to roll into the next thing? We learned some great people that I'd like to fund on their next business and so on. And I think. Just that general thought process, um, I think corporate R&D, and I I don't know this organization how it manages that, but just as a broad statement, I think bringing that philosophy into corporate R&D would be healthy.
1: Tom, we have time for two more questions. Two
3: more, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to learn from you. And I have a question to follow up on a couple of things you've mentioned on passion and risk. How do you handle personal risk in driving this change, right? When the fear, when the anxiety makes us make wrong decisions, how do you keep yourself steady to make sure that you stay with your decisions, that you make the right ones?
0: Mm,
3: Good question.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have a great answer for you because I think that I've been surprised by how far I've lived out of my comfort zone for the past four years. Uh, what I thought originally going into starting this business um, and what it would look like and what our expectations were were quickly exceeded, and and then we you know lived beyond them, and so. I, I think it goes back to you know understanding who you are as a person. You, you, you can there's a lot of growth in being an entrepreneur in existing in this space that you may that may not feel comfortable, but you, it's certainly a good opportunity to learn a lot about yourself, a lot about your coworkers, a lot about um, you know your partners in this business. And so I think you know it's it's just a lot of personal reflection, self-reflection, in recognizing what, what, where some of the, those fears and anxieties lie and then doing the hard work around them in trying to you know, make them right and trying to feel better about them. And, and, and um, I, I know that's just personally where I've been for the past several years, trying to uh, get comfort and understand and then learn from and, and keep moving forward.
3: Mm. that's a great answer i I mean again that's a very personal and interesting question and i don't think you can really answer it without going down a you know a spiritual and philosophical angle but (laughs) it's an important question and i I would also just suggest that uh this is hard and it's hard for everybody and even the the, you know the the big famous guys and gals on tv and so on I, i suspect it's uh it's hard for all the ones that we kind of you know, idolize and support and, and the hero worship. But this is a key challenge here.
2: My my the only thing I can add is, again, like they both said, uh, um, it's very personal, but the only thing I can add is in my what I find about myself is don't don't destroy yourself when you make a bad decision. I used to do this thing where I made a bad decision and, and I'd be like, oh, and I would sort of castigate myself, I'd punish myself almost like a like a uh, uh, metaphorical, you know, cat o' nine tails, right? I'd be whipping myself like this. And it didn't actually make me perform better, right? And, and it would just happen to be the fact the way I was raised, that's what I thought you had to do. Uh, but it actually didn't. And I looked at the people who I admired, who were very successful, um, who, who struggled for their, for their wins professionally. Uh, some of them with, who were you know, independently wealthy, had huge exits and they, they, would, um, they would acknowledge they made mistakes, they would acknowledge they're not perfect, they would integrate sort of the knowledge, and then they would just be free from it, and they, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, they wouldn't bear this like, thing like, oh, I, made, I lost this deal. Like, yeah, you lose deals sometimes, or whatever it is, and you don't want to be blase about it either, like, oh, whatever, I lost $100,000 a year, right? But it's just as bad, if not worse, to castigate yourself. At least that was my experience in my personal journey. Like Brett just said, everyone's different.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have time for one more?
1: Okay. Thank you. In keeping with the personal tone of the last question, my question is specifically to Megan. Um, As you can see in this group, we have a large number of women leaders here, so it's kind of geared towards that. Um, So Megan, uh, Megan, excuse me, your uh, company is funded, obviously, on a very uh, personal passion, a personal journey, a personal story, and we love it. Um, So at any point in your career, in this journey of uh, Jackson's Honest, have you ever felt like you've had to compromise some of that, some of your personal values as a mom or as a woman leader or as a wife? And if you have had to, how have you kind of um, dealt with that? I, um, my, I think the only time I have felt like I needed to be something that I wasn't as far as you know being a mom and putting my kids first always uh, throughout starting this business throughout the past several years of growing this business and my travel and what the responsibilities and requirement were placed requirements were that were placed on me. Uh, My biggest frustration in trying to um, shelve that was during a recent capital raise that we undertook. Mm. Um, I felt very much like I needed to operate as a man in a man's world in the conversations that we were having. And it was very challenging for me Uh, My husband and I co-founded Jackson's Honest and frequently in those conversations, you know, the the conversation was really between he and, you know, the VCs or the private equity folks that we were talking with. And so um, that was probably the the most uh, flagrant uh, example of when I felt like. Uh, I, as a woman founder, as a woman run business, was not being valued for what that meant as far as you know what it's contributed to Jackson's honest in getting us to where we are today. We were lucky enough to meet a wonderful private equity firm who is run by a woman um, who was a uh, on the executive team at General Mills and saw this need for support financial and other resources for uh, women founded women run businesses and so she and her team became our partner in this recent uh, capital raise that we did and it was it was very obvious that it was a different level of conversation that we were having as a team uh, collectively versus the other ones that were primarily interested in my husband Mm-hmm. And I and I hate that to sound like I think it just did, but <laughs> but we are very recently uh, finished with that, and so it's still a little raw. <laughs> thank <laughs> you very much. That's very inspiring.
0: <laughs> Let's give him a round of applause. Well, thank you guys for having us. I'm so honored to be here. Grateful to have brought um, an amazing panel together. Patrick, Meg and Brett, thank you for being here. So thank you guys so much. Thank Thank you. Are you trying to grow your online business but struggling to get new customers consistently and predictably? Are you tired of working nonstop only to see your income plateau? Are you ready to step off the hustle hamster wheel as I call it and step onto a path of predictable profit that you can scale as much or as little? as you want. Don't worry, you're not alone. I've been there. When I first got started, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I started reading blogs and listening to podcasts by people I respected and wanted to learn from. I slowly but surely put their recommendations into practice. But because I wanted to do it all myself, maybe you, you're something like that, right? And You love to do do it by yourself, learn through trial and error. Well, bottom line is it took forever. Results were unpredictable when I was first getting started. I wasn't sure where to spend my time, money, and energy and shiny penny syndrome got the best of me on more than one occasion. For many entrepreneurs, the amount I sacrificed working literally nonstop in some cases in my spare time and 12 and 14 hour days routinely after going full time, combined with the endless fog of war, AKA that uncertainty that I had to deal with at all times because I was going it alone. I think that would have been enough for most entrepreneurs to throw in the towel, but I was persistent, focused, and I stayed humble. Day after day I worked to grow the traffic to my website, increase my list of subscribers, and generate a healthy living for my eBooks, eCourses, and other digital products. At least that was the goal. But maybe more important than the work was that I paid attention to what I was doing, including what worked and what didn't. Eventually I discovered a predictable pattern of growth. And so what I did was I just doubled down on those things and I scrapped or sidelined the other things that weren't working so well. Finally, two years after resigning my commission, as a captain in the army and going full-time on my online business front with my blog, with my podcast, et cetera. I replaced my income with digital product income. Two years. And so if that's where it stopped, I would have been happy with it. I would have been happy with the results. I wouldn't have complained. I would have been very content just replacing my income. But the bottom line is it was so much work. I wanted to you know, see if it could go somewhere else, right? So I just kept doing what I was doing, but better, faster, and more effectively. Again, just kind of applying the same system that I discovered Uh, from seeing these patterns emerge, right? So I implemented it, I kept doing it. And eventually replacing my income turned into doubling my income. And then that turned into a little bit more and a little bit more. But not just that, it afforded me the freedom to dictate my day and also choose the projects I wanna work on, on the schedule and on the timeline I want and to work with the people I want to work with. And to me that's like a whole new level of freedom especially coming from the military. It's something I've never really had that level of complete autonomy until I became my own boss. I started my own business. And until ultimately, until it became profitable enough for me to start to take a step back and actually reap the rewards of it. Because it's not all just working, working, working. And I do believe it's hard work. And I'll always say that. Nothing about doing this stuff is easy. But at the same time, you've got to reap the rewards at some point and take some of that profit. Uh, Even if you're just reinvesting it, into new assets and things like that. Bottom line is it can't just be work, right? Entrepreneurship and business is about that result that occurs, the value you've created and the profit, that that piece of value that you've captured, okay? And you want to be able to reap the rewards of that profit, of that value, that little sliver of value that you get to capture, that you get to net, right? You want to be able to take advantage of that. Otherwise, you know, the entrepreneurship game really does become just a grind. And and for, I think, a lot of entrepreneurs, unfortunately, it becomes meaningless, and that's when they quit. Well, for me, I love this stuff. I really, truly do. I mean, it is my thing. And so that's why I didn't just stop where I was at. I've stayed committed to learning everything I can about all aspects of this online business world and this online marketing world. And I do this through real-world application. In other words, I'm currently growing several online businesses and I'm always putting my ideas to the test in real time with my own money, with my own time and energy, oftentimes with employees, you know, a lot of some some stuff more advanced, some stuff more simple, but, you know, so varying levels of complexity and again, in different spaces, different niches. And I can say, you know, bottom line, I've always loved the startup hustle, but I got to say, it's nice to now be in a position where I can get big results with much less effort, thanks to having built the foundation of my business the right way. And again, I did it all through trial and error, but I don't think that that's the way that everyone needs to do it. And in fact, looking back on it, if I had to redo it, I don't know if I would. It was so difficult to just go it alone and try to figure everything out by myself. So one of the things I've tried to do is get back with this podcast, with my blog, and with my newsletter. But maybe even more rewarding than any of this stuff, while I've enjoyed all of it, I think the thing that I'm enjoying the most that I find most engaging and rewarding is the premium business mastermind and coaching program I run called 100K Academy. Inside 100K Academy, I help ambitious entrepreneurs who are very driven and excited to be doing what they're doing. I help them grow their reach, their influence, and their profit using my proprietary marketing system. That's the same one I use to scale my own online businesses from zero to multiple six figures and beyond, and the same system I use to help my clients reach the New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestseller list, set Kickstarter funding records, and create viral product launches that have turned into predictable revenue streams. So lots and lots of case studies that you could find at TomMorcus.com. If you're curious, just go to TomMorcus.com slash about, and that'll get you started. Most importantly, this system is one that 100K Academy members and alumni have used to achieve tremendous results, like Alexa, who used it to have her most profitable year ever, or Tina, who used it to make five figures from a sales funnel that she can now replicate and scale, and that's exactly what she's doing. Or Carrie, who made over $75,000 in just seven days. And the crazy part about his story was that his online business was actually a side hustle up until that first profitable launch, which he has then been able to grow and scale. And he subsequently quit his job following that very successful week. And I think that that has been just a game changer for Carrie and the life he's living, the work he gets to do, and the impact he gets to make on the world because of the great work he's doing now. Because he was able to figure out a system that would get him the targeted traffic, the subscribers, the sales to grow a profitable online business. Bottom line, if you want to grow your online business from six to seven figures, but you flatlined or you're struggling, or you just want to be told what to do and when to do it and in what order, right? And you want a system that is predictable and scalable and isn't just, you know, another shiny penny, but actually will fit right into your business. It plugs in and is something that you can truly grow. I want you to go to tommorcus.com academy. That's tommorcus.com academy. Academy is spelled A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Go to tommorcus.com academy, and you'll find a page on my website with more details about 100K Academy, the business mastermind coaching program I run, as well as instructions on what to do next. Again, that's TomMorcus.com slash Academy. And if you're serious about growing your reach, influence, or profit, just follow the instructions and we'll be in touch, okay? Again, TomMorcus.com slash Academy. Go ahead and head over there now. That's it for today. Stay frosty.